0: Open to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. It was our second trip to India that we went into a village and this village had gone through a lot. There had been a rock slide and many years earlier half the villagers had died because of that. But a story was told to us about this village. About 15 to 20 years prior, there was a woman who was very, very sick. And she had tried all types of home remedies. She had tried everything. She went to the local witch doctor and tried for him to cast spells to help her get better. And so she was not a believer in Jesus. And she died. And her family was mourning her death. And they were distraught, and so they asked the local Baptist pastor in the village to come and pray with the family. And the pastor came and said, I'll pray with you. And so this pastor wasn't looking for anything really miraculous. He just began to pray with this family. He began to pray over the dead body, asking the Lord to show his power through the gospel to give the family hope. Well, in the time that he was praying, what was reported to us was the woman woke up, began coughing, and asked for some chai tea. Now, when this story was told to us, I looked at our missionary friend and said, is this true? And he said, Sean, you got to remember, this is India where God shows up in miraculous ways. So we receive this as secondhand information, and so I take it at face value that this woman literally rose from the dead. Now, here's the thing that you have to understand. This local pastor was not a Benny Hinn. Okay, He wasn't doing miracle crusades where he was charging money and trying to make a name for himself and trying to get everybody to come to his miracle crusade. And He wasn't drawing attention to himself. He was just humbly praying and asking God to show forth the power of the gospel. And because this lady was raised from the dead, it brought massive conversions to the entire village and it was changed by the gospel. Now, this is very rare, very rare. This is not the normal way that God goes about showing his power. But we've got to accept this story as if it truly happened, because I don't doubt the source. But as we sit here this morning, there's one impending event that every single one of you is going to face, I guarantee it. There's the final enemy that all of us are going to face, and that is death. You don't know the day of your death, you don't know how you're going to die, but you will die unless Christ comes back first. Every single one of us will face death. We cannot escape it. Paul describes death as the final enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, in a fallen world, death is the final enemy. Death is a result of sin. People die because Adam and Eve brought death into the world. So death is not the way that God originally created the world. It is a result of sin. And so as Christians, we should not fear death because it's not the final chapter. We should never fear death. As we come to John chapter 11, this is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead it's also his fifth i am statement he's given these i am statements as we've gone through the gospel of john i am the bread of life the first one i am the light of the world second one i am the door for the sheep third one i am the good shepherd fourth one and here he comes to the fifth i am statement i am the resurrection and the life And the raising of Lazarus from the dead is a parable. It's a a poignant picture of a greater reality of what Christ has done in defeating death. So here's the main point of our passage this morning. Here's the big idea of John chapter 11, the takeaway. It's simply this. God is most glorified when you have a confident trust in in Jesus' power to raise you from the dead and grant you eternal life. God is most glorified when you have a confident trust in Jesus' power to raise you from the dead and grant you eternal life. This passage of Scripture clearly deals with the glory of God. This pastor passage clearly deals with Jesus' power as the resurrection and the life, but this passage of Scripture also deals with you and me and how we respond to that. Are we going to have confident trust in Jesus' power to do that? So this unfolds before us in five vignettes or five scenes, five episodes. And we're very familiar with this story. As a matter of fact, it's got the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Remember when you were a kid, you wanted to memorize that? I want to memorize, you know, the first scripture I ever memorized, Jesus wept. It's an easy one. You've got a scripture memorized this morning, don't you? Jesus wept. It's part of a larger story, okay? So here, let's look at scene one. Jesus hears of the death of Lazarus. Jesus hears of the death of Lazarus. This is in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. So let's read the word of the Lord together. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, "'Lord, he whom you love is ill.'" But they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Jesus evidently has a very special relationship with this family. Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. They lived in Bethany, which was just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, if you remember last week, Jesus had to leave, remember, because he was accused of being um, a blasphemer because he claimed to be, I and the Father are one, and they sought to stone him and arrest him, and it said that Jesus had to get out of there. He had to retreat to the countryside. And so they're out in the countryside kind of hiding out because it's kind of a volatile situation and news gets back to him that his dear friend is ill. And Jesus is going to do things on the Father's timetable because it's all about the glory of God. John 17, 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. It doesn't make sense what Jesus does. If you were to hear one of your best friends was sick and you were Jesus and had the power to heal, would not you jump up, take your disciples and rush right to heal him before he dies? But what it happens? Look at what it says there. In verse 11, I mean chapter 11, verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why does Jesus stay two days longer? Why doesn't he just rush out and go heal Lazarus? Why wait and let Lazarus die when you have the power to heal him? Why is Jesus acting in such a mysterious way? If it would have been us, we would have gone right away And we would have healed Lazarus so that he wouldn't have to die. And so sometimes Jesus does things that don't quite make sense. Why doesn't Jesus just automatically intervene? Why doesn't Jesus just automatically give me the answers? Why doesn't Jesus just do things on my timetable? Why does he do the things he does sometimes? Well, the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. If you want to know why sometimes God doesn't act the way you want to, the answer is He's got a secret, and He's not sharing it with you. And He has no right or obligation to share it with you. There are secret things of God that He does because He's God, and He does not have to let you in on what He's doing. Now, that's frustrating. Because God has these secret things, but it's his right to have these secret things. We don't often know why God does what he does. Isaiah fifty five, eight through nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, cognitively we can understand this. God's ways are higher. God doesn't always operate the way we want him to. Sometimes God delays. Sometimes people die. It's very difficult to give this answer to a person that's struggling. To parents that just lost their child in a car crash. To someone that just got diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. To the victims of massive terrorist attacks like Orlando or San Bernardino or victims of Hurricane Matthew, or even when you think about 9-11. We look at these things and we think, why doesn't God just come on in and deal with it so that people don't have to go through these things? Could not God have stopped 9-11 if he wanted to? Yes. Cannot God stop evil if he wanted to? It's not that God's not powerful. Sometimes God doesn't stop bad things from happening. We don't know why. But here's the question you got to ask. Some people say, well, why doesn't God just get rid of all the evil in the world? God is too gracious to do that. And you may think, what do you mean God is too gracious to do that? If God were to get rid of all the evil in the world, guess what he'd have to do? Annihilate every single one of us. Because who's the source of evil? We are. So if God were to get rid of all the evil in the world, he'd have to get rid of all the people that cause the evil. Now, we may not know why God allows or ordains certain things to happen, We know that we live in a fallen world where there's death, but sometimes God doesn't do things on our timetable, and Jesus here is saying, let's wait two more days. And I'm sure his disciples are like, Jesus, we got to go. we got to get there. This this Lazarus is going to die if you don't get there. He's seriously ill. But Jesus also does this to strengthen their faith. Look at verse 15. He's doing it to strengthen their faith. Let's just pick up in verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And notice what he says in verse 15. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Jesus kind of doesn't make sense. I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad he died. What? Jesus, you're glad he died. I'm glad he died for your sake, so that you may believe. Now, if God gave you all the answers all the time, would you need God? Would you need faith? Would you even need a Savior if you had all the answers and everything worked out always the way that you wanted to? So Jesus is concerned about two things here. He's concerned about God's glory and the strengthening of your faith. And if that's the primary purpose of Jesus in this story, to glorify God and strengthen your faith, I think it should be what's on our radar screens. What would we want? We would want God's glory and the strengthening of our faith. And he does that for the disciples. He says, I'm not going to go heal Lazarus. He's going to die. And the reason I'm doing this is for the glory of God and the strengthening of your faith. Now, it doesn't make sense, but Jesus knows what he's doing. There's a monastery in Europe that's perched on a high cliff. And these monks will get in these little baskets and they'll pull themselves up on a rope pulley to get up to the very top of this monastery. It's also a tourist spot. Some tourists will get in these little baskets and they'll, they'll go up and visit the top of this monastery. Well, there was this tourist one time. He was in a basket. And he's being pulled up the top of this cliff and he looks at the, the rope. He starts thinking to himself, that looks pretty sketchy. The, the twine on that rope looks like it's about ready to break. It's fraying. I'm a little nervous here. So he looked at the monk and said, I've got a question for you. We're scaling this, hall, this, this, this tall wall. I'm in this little basket. How often do you guys replace the ropes? The monk thought to himself, whenever they break. <laughs> Sometimes you feel like that, don't you? You're in a little basket. Going up the side of the cliff, you're barely hanging on, you're looking at the frayed, you know, you're looking at the frayed rope and you're thinking, is this thing going to come crashing down? That's what walking by faith, not by sight is. Yes, it's risky. Yes, sometimes we don't have all the answers, but we've got to trust God that he knows what he's doing. And these disciples need to trust Jesus that he knows what he's doing. This is not going to end in death, Jesus says, even though Lazarus has died. It's for the glory of God. It's for the strengthening of your faith. Now, let's look at scene two. Scene 2, Jesus' power as the resurrection and the life. Let's continue reading. Let's pick up in verse 17. 17 through 27. So they've decided to go after Lazarus has already died. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. who's coming into the world. Jesus waits four days. Lazarus is decomposing in the tomb. Now, why four days? In mystical Jewish superstition, rabbis would teach that the soul would hover over the body for three days, and then after the third day, the soul would leave, and the body could start decomposing. So some scholars believe that maybe Jesus goes there After the fourth day, just so he wouldn't be accused of resuscitation. Just so in the minds of everybody, Lazarus would be fully, fully dead. If you've been dead four days, you're pretty dead. And Martha is the assertive sister. She's the type A sister. Mary stays back crying in the house. Martha goes out to meet Jesus. And she's distraught. And in verse 21, we're not thinking here that Martha is necessarily rebuking Jesus or getting in Jesus' face. She's expressing true grief, but she's also expressing faith. Look at verse 21. She goes out and says to the Lord, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Now that makes sense, right? Lord, if you would have taken the time to get here before Lazarus died, I know that you could have healed him. I know that you can heal people. I know that you've healed many people. If you would have got here sooner, if you just would have gotten here sooner, Jesus, Lazarus would not have have died because i know you could have healed him so she's got faith that jesus has the power to heal but notice what jesus does jesus says to her in verse 23 your brother will rise again your brother's gonna live and what's she thinking Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection of the last day. Every single Orthodox Jew, the Pharisees, all of them, based upon the Old Testament teaching, knew that there was a final resurrection of the dead. They knew that the Bible teaches there's a final resurrection. Even Christians believe that, Jews believe that, Martha believed that. That was not the issue. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Of course he's going to rise again at the end of the age, on the final judgment, at the final resurrection. But notice what Jesus says to her. It's the I am statement. He says there in verse 25, I am, literally in the Greek, I myself am, the resurrection and the life. Martha, there is going to be a resurrection at the end of the age. But right now, right here, I am standing before you as the one who defines that resurrection and determines who's going to experience that. I'm standing before you as the embodiment of the resurrection and the life. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, I give you resurrection, I give you life, which is true, but he says, I am. I am the embodiment of that. I am the fulfillment of that. I am the source of that. I'm the only one that can... They can give you the resurrection and the life. And so there's two blessings that Jesus says he's going to give. I am the resurrection. What is the resurrection? It is Jesus' power to raise you from the dead on that last day. And secondly, Jesus has the power to give you eternal life, never ending life, life forever with Him. But what's the condition? What's the condition? Notice what he says there. Jesus said to her, I am, this is verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There's belief. But notice what Jesus says. If you believe in me, if you believe I'm the resurrection and the life, you will never die. Die. It's a double negative in the Greek language. You will never, no, not ever, die. You'll never die. Now, you'll experience death, which all of us experience, but you'll never die. That's a paradox. What does it mean that you'll never die? You will experience physical death, but you'll never die because you will be resurrected and you will have Eternal life. Go back to chapter 1, verse 4 for a moment in your Bibles. Jesus is the source of life. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. When when John talks about life, it's eternal life. Jesus is the embodiment of, of eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 26. Chapter 5, verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is the source of of true life. And then John 10.10, we saw this a few weeks ago. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus is the source of eternal life. Now, let me just let you know something here. Every single person has eternal life. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Sean. You sound like it makes sound like everybody's going to heaven. Did I say everybody's going to heaven? No, I did not say that, but I did say everybody's going to have eternal life. Every single person is going to experience eternal life. That's not the question. The question is, where are you going to spend it? Those who have faith in Jesus Christ will spend eternity with him in the new heavens, and the new earth, experiencing the joy of your salvation forever and ever. Eternal joy. Those that die rejecting Christ and die in their sins and never trust Christ, they will experience eternal life. But it will be eternal life and eternal conscious torment in hell. They too will live forever. So every single person will live forever. The question is, what's going to be the condition of your eternal life and where will you spend that eternal life? And Jesus says here, the only way to have true eternal life, never, never dying eternal life, is to come to me to believe in me. And notice what he he says to Martha there. Do you believe this? Do you believe what, Martha? That there's going to be a resurrection at the last day? Everybody believe that. Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe that I am the resurrection and life? That I'm the one that provides you salvation? That I'm the one that can raise you from the dead on the final day? And that I'm the one that gives you eternal life? Do you believe this, Martha? look at her response. Verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Now, it's very, very important, the tense of the verb that is used here. Oftentimes, I don't want to bore you with the Greek text, but it's very, very important. This is in what we call the perfect tense. It's not the present tense. Present tense would be, yes, Lord, I'm, I'm believing in you right now. Perfect tense means this. Yes, Lord, I've come to the confident conclusion that I believe this and I'm standing on that belief and I will always stand on that belief. It's the strongest way that you can express faith in Christ. It's a wholehearted confident secure trust that jesus is who he says he is i have come to strongly believe this jesus and i'm still believing so what kind of faith is required for you to experience salvation is it a mamby-pamby just mental ascent where you just say a few words and you you jot you, you sign your card on the line and and basically you just give lip service is that the kind of faith no it is total trust Now, we see two aspects of Martha's faith here. That's true for every single one of you that are Christians. Two aspects of her faith. The first thing we see about her faith is that she assents, or she agrees with, or she confesses certain facts to be true about who Jesus is. In other words, she's come to the solid conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is. There's no doubt in her mind that this is who Jesus says he is, because notice what she says there. She gives three confessions Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, number one. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. I believe that. Number two, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you're God in the flesh, that you are absolutely divine. And that, number three, that you're coming into the world. You're the coming one. You're the you're the prophesied one. There's no doubt in Martha's mind of who Jesus is. It's a solid faith in the assenting to the facts of who Jesus is you're the Christ you're the Messiah you're the Lord now is that faith halfway there's a lot of people that agree with facts of who Jesus is you can go out on the street today and ask people was Jesus the son of God yes was Jesus the Messiah yes they'll check the box they'll say yes but is that faith Yes, you have to believe that he is who he said he is, but here's the second thing about Martha's faith. It's true faith. Notice what she says. Yes, Lord, I believe this. I'm placing my faith in you personally, Jesus, as my Lord. I'm believing that you are who you say you are, but I'm also placing my entire life in you as Lord. It's a strong, confident trust that Jesus is who he said he is and that he is the resurrection, the life, and that he is Lord. It's personal trust. So yes, you have to believe Jesus is who he said he is. You've got to agree with the facts of who Jesus is, but you also have to personally place your entire life in him. You must believe into him. You must fully trust him personally as your Lord and Savior. Let's look at scene three. Jesus expresses deep sorrow. 28 through 37. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, the same exact words Martha said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. What's the one exception? Mary doesn't follow it up with an expression of faith. She's just emotional. She's an emotional wreck. She's got all these people coming out. Her brother's just died. She's emotional. Verse 33, when she saw, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in a spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not, who, he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Mary comes out, she's weeping, she's uncontrollable, she says the same thing that Martha says, and Jesus sees this, Jesus sees this deep, deeply moved woman, this family that he loves, these people that are crying. Everyone's mourning. This is a scene where someone that you loved has just died. And back then, they're a little bit more demonstrative than we are. So there's a lot. They actually had professional mourners that they would hire to come in and cry. There's a lot of crying going on. But notice what happens here. In verse 33, Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit. It's a very rare Greek word. It means to snort like a horse. It could mean that he was angered. He's agitated. He's outraged. It also says there in verse 34 I'm sorry, um, verse 33 that he was greatly troubled. Now you have to ask yourself a question Why is Jesus angry? Why is Jesus mad? Why is Jesus troubled? there's a lot of different opinions out there but there's two main opinions that people give one is that jesus is angry at sin in a fallen world he sees sin he sees death he sees death as an enemy he he looks at the fallen world and he's just angry that sin has so ravaged the world that he's just angry that people have to live and, and have to experience the effects of the fall he's angry at a fallen world other scholars say that Jesus was angry at their lack of faith. Why weren't they believing that Jesus could do the impossible? Now, I don't know which one it is, because we can't overanalyze or over-psychoanalyze uh, Jesus. We really don't know. The Bible just says that he was moved in his spirit, he was troubled. Something that he saw bothered him. But one thing we do know, and that is verse 35, Jesus wept now we, we, we cross Jesus wept Jesus wept do you realize that word means Jesus burst into tears it is the only time in the bible that verb is ever used it's never used anywhere else it is a violent bursting forth of crying It wasn't like Jesus just had a few little teardrops come down. No, this is sobbing. And again, you have to ask the question, why is Jesus crying? Doesn't he know he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead? It's not like he doesn't know what's going to happen next. I think what it shows us is that Jesus is human. And he's God at the same time. We can't quite understand the full humanity, the full deity of Christ. But here you have Jesus, God in the flesh. He's sympathizing with his friends. He's showing compassion. He's not some robotic man that just goes around and and raises people from the dead. No, he's plunging himself into the situation and he's sympathizing, he's empathizing, he's loving, he's feeling, he's sad because he knows that his friends are sad. Now he knows what he's gonna do. But we have Jesus' humanity here in full light. Hebrews 4, 15, and 16. The writer of Hebrews tells us about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who's unable, this is talking about Jesus, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Je- Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he was in every respect who's been tempted in, in the way we are, yet without sin. Everything that we would ever go through, Jesus has gone through. The one exception is he never sinned. And because of that, the writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why can we go to Jesus when we are crying, when we're frustrated, when we struggle? Why can we go to Jesus with our tears? Because he cried tears. He knows exactly what we're going through. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Jesus is not some distant deity out there that has no care. He cares deeply about what you're going through, down to the smallest detail. Now, in his earthly form, Jesus cried and wept. But today, he's in heaven as the risen Savior, and the Bible says you can go directly to him as your high priest with all of your needs. Because he's there to help you in time of need. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Jesus cares deeply about what you're going through. He cared deeply about this family so much that he cried. But let's look at scene four. Jesus powerfully raises Lazarus from the dead. Here's the actual sign, the actual miracle. Let's pick up in verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. There's that word again. He's he's agitated. He's stirred up. There's something inside him welling up. Came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the pragmatic woman that she is, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Anybody got a King James? I think it says stinketh. So they took away the stone. Oh, sorry, verse 40. And let him go. Jesus doesn't say to the people, hey, go over. And um, Jesus himself doesn't go over and remove the stone. He commands the people to go remove the stone. They still got to obey him. He's still Lord in the situation. And Martha's thinking, if you open that stone, Jesus... There's going to be some serious odor coming out of there. And what do they do? They go, open it. And Jesus again reminds everybody in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What's Jesus most concerned about? The glory of God and their faith. I'm doing this to show forth God's glory and to increase your faith. Open the stone. Regardless if it stinks, you're about to see God's glory. You're about to have your faith strengthened. Just open the stone. And then Jesus prays out loud. Why does Jesus pray out loud? Because he is afraid God can't hear him if he prays, prays his breath, under his breath? No, he says specifically there why he prayed out loud. I'm praying out loud, not for, not for our benefit, God. We have a perfect relationship. I'm praying out loud so the people around me can hear how I pray and that they may believe. This is all about the people's belief in the power of Christ. Now, how does the miracle work? Okay, the stones open. Does Jesus walk in secretly, lay over Lazarus, breathe life into him, and grab him and bring him out? Is that how the miracle happens? How does the miracle happen? All Jesus says is, Lazarus, come out. Now, why did he say, Lazarus, come out? Not just say, come out. If he would have just said, come out, there may be a bunch of people coming out of their tombs. He had to say, Lazarus, come out. The power of Christ's word created the resurrection. And what does Lazarus do? He comes out. Now, back then, they would roll somebody twice in a sheet to make them real tight, and they'd wrap their feet and wrap their head. So there's, there's no way he's going to be wa- even waddling out. He comes out at the bare power of Christ's word. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. There's no delay. Lazarus is not in there saying, Well, I still want to be dead. Jesus, why did you interrupt this? You're always interfering. No, what does Lazarus do? He comes out. Now, I said to you that the resurrection of Lazarus is a parable, a picture. What does Jesus say? I am the resurrection, the life. What's this a picture of? What's the deeper meaning of Lazarus being raised from the dead? There's three. There's three pictures, there's three illustrations, there's three parables, if you will, of what this pictures. Here's the first. It foreshadows the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. Remember in time, Jesus has not risen from the grave yet. What, what is happening here to these people? Jesus is giving them a foretaste, a foreshadowing. I'm going to raise from the dead." First Corinthians 15:17, "If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Jesus is going to die on the cross. Three days later, he's going to rise again. He's going to conquer death once and for all. Now, this is what always what bothers me about the story. If you're Lazarus, Lazarus has to die again. You ever thought about that? He's been raised from the dead, but he's going to either die of old age or something. He's going to have to die again and await the resurrection. Jesus, when he dies on the cross and is buried in the tomb and raises again, it's once and for all, right? He's risen from the grave. He's alive. He is the risen Savior. And so the first picture that the rat Lazarus raising from the dead is that Jesus is going to raise from the dead, but he's not going to die again. He's the, the risen Christ. But number two, it pictures the miracle of our spiritual resurrection. Do you realize that the Bible talks about us being dead in our sin? spiritually dead in our sins. We can't somehow make ourselves alive because we're dead. God has to call to us. So picture yourself like Lazarus. You're Lazarus in the tomb spiritually. You're dead. And when God calls you to salvation, when the Holy Spirit brings conviction and says, so and so come out, what do you do? Spiritually You come out of your slavery. You come out of your deadness, and God gives you new life. You are spiritually raised from the dead. Every single person that's a Christian here has been spiritually raised from the dead. You were once dead in sin. Christ has raised you to walk in newness of life. We sang that earlier. The old is gone. The new has come. Think about what Paul says here in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead... In our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Every single one of us needs to experience a spiritual resurrection from the dead. Every single one of us was dead in our sins, and Christ raised us to new life. And and the same thing happens when God calls to you, you will come out. But not only is it a foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection, it's not only a picture of our spiritual resurrection. It has to happen to us. It's called being born again or regeneration. But it's also, it also anticipates the miracle of our final resurrection. What does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. Now, yes, he's going to rise again. And yes, he just rose Lazarus. But do you know what the Bible teaches? One day, all of us will experience a final resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 56. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. There's going to come a day, we don't know when that day is, where you will be resurrected with a brand new glorified body to live Forever in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ in his glorified resurrected body, forever and ever in joy. But what happens if you don't have Christ? What does the book of Revelation say about if you don't have Christ? The opposite. Revelation 20, 12 through 15. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. There will be a final resurrection. A resurrection to righteousness or a resurrection to judgment. A resurrection to experience eternal joy with Jesus. A resurrection to experience external torment in hell. What did Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. You're going to die physically but you will never die because Jesus will raise you from the dead on that final day and he will give you eternal life one final scene and we'll just paraphrase it Jesus' life is in danger verses 45 through 57 for the sake of time I won't read that but basically what happens is some of the people believe look at verse 47 or verse 49 um, sorry verse 45 many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary had seen what he did believed in him but some of them tattletale to the Pharisees so here's what happens I'm kind of paraphrasing that They went and told on Jesus, and Jesus felt so threatened that he had to leave again because his life was in danger, and he goes to the hillside to a place called Ephraim, but here's the issue. There's a key word that shows up eight times in this story, eight times. You need to pay attention to repetition What word shows up eight times in this story? Well, let's go back and look. Maybe you weren't paying attention. Maybe you were. Verse 15. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes... In me, though he die, shall not live. Verse 26, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that, you, that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. What's the key word? Come on now. Believed. Believed. And again, it's not just, hey, I kind of know it up here. I I know the facts. It's the believing that Martha had. You've got to ask yourself a question. Are you prepared for that final resurrection and that final judgment? Are you prepared for that day? That day will come. You cannot escape that day. Every single one of us in this room will face that day, the day of judgment. Are you ready for that day? Do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Are you going to be one who's raised to eternal life because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you spend eternity with Jesus? Or will you be one that's raised to eternal uh, destruction in hell because you've not trusted Christ for salvation? There may be many of you here this morning that are struggling with just life because of life situations. And you may find yourself like Mary and Martha where where your, your brothers died. It's a very painful situation. And you're wondering to yourself, where is God in the midst of all of this? Why isn't God showing up? Why is God delaying? Why is God doing what he's doing? Why, why, why? You have to step back and say, okay, I may not know why, but there's two things I know. God is doing this for his glory and the strengthening of my faith. I may not like it, I may not agree with it. I may not fully understand it. But let me just ask you a question. If you're truly a Christian, aren't those the two things you want? I mean, at the bottom of your heart, whether you can understand things or not, don't you want, at the bottom of your heart, for God to be glorified and your faith to be strengthened? If you say no, then ask yourselves maybe I'm not truly a Christian. Where is your security? God is most glorified when we have a confident trust in Jesus' power to raise us from the dead and to give us eternal life. So here's my question for you this morning. Is your faith like Martha? What did Jesus say to her? Do You believe this. If Jesus were to appear to you today and say, Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? What is your answer to Jesus? Is it like Martha? Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you are coming into the world. I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. I believe. That's the question every single one of us has to face this morning. Do you believe? believe let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and let's spend some time going to the lord in prayer and as i as i prayed about this sermon this morning and thought about it there's probably two categories of people here this morning generally There may be some of you here that are believers, that you're already Christians, you've already trusted Christ for salvation, but maybe just this morning with events going on in your life, you're struggling to have faith in the power of Christ. And you need encouragement, and you need to trust, and you need the hope to know that Christ is the resurrection and life. Would you just cling to the promise that He's your resurrection and your life? He cares about you. Cast your cares upon him because he cares about you. The other group of people in this room may be those that have never trusted Christ before for salvation. You know you're not a believer. You know maybe in your head you have some facts about who Jesus is, but you've never fully trusted him. You've never said, yes, Lord, I believe. You've never trusted fully in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And today is the day of salvation Come to Christ today. So let's just take the quietness of this moment to go before Jesus as the resurrection and the life, and let's just believe Him that He is who He says He is and trust Him with everything as our Lord and Savior. that no matter what we go through, If anything, we see from the story that you care. That you weeped. And Lord, I don't know what people are going through in their lives this morning. There may be many that have come into this place with deep wounds, deep concerns, fear, anxiety. For whatever reason, Lord, would you, as the good shepherd, as the resurrection and the life, would you just, in in this moment, Lord, do a special work of grace to bring comfort and peace to hearts that are troubled? Would you minister in deep ways that can only be explained by the power of God? Lord, will we leave this place encouraged because we have a Savior who's powerful and also caring. And Lord, will we leave this place because we have a risen Savior who's on the throne. We've been spiritually risen from the dead. We're no longer dead in our sins. And Lord, one day we're going to experience a final resurrection and, and, and the old will ultimately be gone and the new will come and we will have a brand new body forever in your presence. If nothing else, give us just the hope of our eternal life this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. And when we believe in you, we will never, ever die. What great hope, what great joy, what great assurance to know our future. Lord, in a world that's very uncertain about the future. So one thing we know is absolutely true. What awaits us? We can look death in the face and say, yes, you are a final enemy, but you're not. You're not going to win in the end. Christ won the victory on the cross and his resurrection, and we get to live forever. So thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the joy of our salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory and for the strengthening of our faith. Amen.